So it's not 100% what everybody wants, but when you look, the country is going to be stronger. House Republican leadership and the White House have agreed on a tentative deal with compromises on both sides to solve the debt limit crisis. For Sunday, May 28th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. We'll have the latest on the debt ceiling deal and election results from Turkey. Also this hour, we'll hear about artificial intelligence from the man dubbed the godfather of AI. This isn't just a science fiction problem. This is a serious problem that's probably going to arrive fairly soon, and politicians need to be thinking about what to do about it now. And from podcasts around the NPR network, we go to WBEZ and Curious City. Imagine hiking up a mountain for 14 hours with a suitcase. The more you walk, the heavier everything gets. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Top Republican negotiators are back on Capitol Hill after announcing a deal last night with the White House that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. As NPR's Elena Moore reports, House Republicans now must rally support among their caucus ahead of a vote this week. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy characterized the agreement Sunday as positive. Speaking to reporters, he thanked the White House for their part in the negotiations. We know at any time when you sit and negotiate within two parties that you got to work with both sides of the aisle. So it's not 100% what everybody wants, but when you look, the country is going to be stronger. The speaker says he has solid Republican support for the deal, claiming that 95% of his conference is excited about what they see. That said, a handful of Republican lawmakers have expressed opposition to the proposal. The White House will brief Democrats later. Elena Moore, NPR News, the Capitol. And the vote is expected on Wednesday. President Biden says he believes he and McCarthy are in a good place with negotiations and will speak again by phone today. Turkey's longtime president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has won another term in today's presidential election runoff, according to electoral authorities. He told jubilant supporters that Turkey alone has won. The BBC's Orla Guren has more. Turkey's longest-serving leader will now be heading into a third term in office. For his supporters, of course, that's a cause for celebration. For his critics here, and there are many, uh, it's a cause for fear. It's a cause for concern about the state of the economy, uh, which he is blamed for uh, causing, for example, rampant inflation. Uh, and also there are concerns on the part of many here about a further erosion of freedoms, free speech and civil liberties. But tonight it looks like the night belongs to the ruling party and to their supporters and to Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The BBC's Orla Guerin reporting. President Biden congratulated Erdogan on his win. Civil rights groups in California are asking police departments in the state to stop sharing their license plate tracking data with police in states that restrict abortion. And Piers Martin Costi has more. Police departments routinely use automatic license plate readers to keep track of which cars appear in certain places. And those records can be sent to other police, even out of state. Jennifer Pinsoff is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can imagine it would be very easy for an investigator to query the address of an abortion clinic, and that would reveal the vehicles of patients, doctors, and others who are visiting that facility. She says this poses a special risk to women who come to California from states where abortion is illegal. And the EFF, as well as chapters of the ACLU, have asked California police departments to stop sharing the license plate data out of state. Martin Costi reporting. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
I'm John Carpilio in Boston. With temperatures close to 90 degrees, people at the Boston Calling Music Fest in Alston are trying to beat the heat. Bobby Gilroy from Providence is using the water stations to fill up her water bottles. This is already my second round of filling these up. It's a hot one today. And it's like the first really hot one of the year that I've been outside in, so there's some getting used to it that's happening. Gilroy says she's looking forward to seeing Paramore, one of the bands performing on this final day of the three-day festival. The National Park Service is reminding beachgoers to be aware of the potential for sharks off Cape Cod. WBUR's John Bender reports the region's first great white shark sighting of the season has already occurred in Stellwagen Bank. Researchers have documented an increase in great white sharks as the seal population increases. Seals are favorite prey of great whites. But the waters off Massachusetts are home to many other shark species, from whale sharks to the much smaller dogfish. New England Aquarium researcher John Chisholm says new species of sharks are making their way to the region as ocean temperatures warm. Last year was the first year that I ever documented a spinner shark in Massachusetts waters, usually found down south. It's been documented throughout other Atlantic states that they've slowly been expanding their range north. Swimmers are reminded to stay close to shore and avoid waters where seals are present. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The Boston Celtics will make history if they win Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals tomorrow night. If they beat the Miami Heat at the Garden, they'll be the first team in NBA history to win a series after being down 3-0. The winner tomorrow night moves into the Finals to play the Denver Nuggets. In other sports news this afternoon, the Red Sox are wrapping up a western road trip, and uh, they are trailing the Arizona Diamondbacks right now 4-0 in the fourth inning. Sunny the rest of the afternoon, upper 80s, clear 50s overnight. Sunny, cooler 60s for Memorial Day tomorrow, and sunny, low 70s Tuesday. 87 in Boston. WBUR supporters include HBO. Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film, Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI. Premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on Max. Has reached a deal with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on raising the debt ceiling. Now it's up to members of the Senate and House to approve the deal and avert a fast-approaching economic crisis. But there are some lingering concerns that could still upend the deal. White House correspondent Franco, Franco Ordonez is with us to break down the latest. So, uh, Franco, hi. Hey, Eric. So, uh, what more can you tell us about the deal and the current state of play? Well, Biden and McCarthy spoke again today, or are going to speak again today, to make sure, as Biden puts it, that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted on the legislative text that will go out to members. The agreement raises the debt ceiling for two years until after the presidential election, and it also maintains non-defense spending for two years, and it protects Medicaid. These are things that Democrats wanted. Republicans also scored a victory, though, in that it includes more work requirements for some social benefit programs, like for people using food stamps. But Biden emphasized that it is a compromise and that neither Democrats nor Republicans get everything they want. And that's really for sure, because we've already heard some rumblings about some of those changes from both sides of the aisle. That's right. Well, let's talk about those concerns. I mean, what exactly are they and are they big enough to upend the agreement? 
Well, some Democrats are concerned about those work requirements for social benefit programs, and some of the hardline Republicans are concerned that the cuts to federal spending are not deep enough. Actually, a prominent member of the conservative Freedom Caucus, Chip Roy, even took to Twitter and warned that he and others were going to try to stop the bill from passing. But Kevin McCarthy is calling the deal transformational, and he expressed confidence that Republicans would ultimately support the agreement once they read it. We know at any time when you sit and negotiate within two parties that you got to work with both sides of the aisle. So it's not 100% what everybody wants, but when you look, the country is going to be stronger. Well, Franco, the president said it himself. Not everyone's getting what they want here. So what else can you tell us about Democrats' concerns? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not just the Republicans. Representative Pramila Jayapal is chair of the House Progressive Caucus. She said the White House should be worried about support from progressives. Talking especially about the work requirements, she said on CNN that it was bad policy and that it won't save money. It is about people who are hungry, people who just need a little bit of temporary assistance. And um, we are one of the only countries in the world, if not the only country in the world that is an industrialized country that puts any requirements on people who just want food. So that's strong language from a person from the president's own party. But when the president arrived at the White House this afternoon, he said he was confident that it would pass. Well, I I guess it's not surprising that there's some different messages coming out of the Capitol versus the White House, which originally said it wouldn't negotiate over the debt limit at all. So if this deal does fall apart, who's got the most to lose? Really, both sides have a lot to lose. You know, the stakes are especially high for McCarthy, whose future as speaker may depend on whether he can address some of those concerns from the right wing of his party. And as for Biden, he's largely been able to keep his caucus together, despite Jayapal's concerns. That said, even if Democrats remain united and Republicans do not, Biden still has a lot to lose here. He's the president and he's running for re-election in 2024. If this blows up and triggers a recession, for example, a bad economy could really hurt his chances for re-election. And the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll actually found that independents would blame Biden by a wide margin if the nation defaults on its debt. Well, that's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks, Franco. Thank you, Eric. Let's head now to Turkey, where President Erdogan has won his third term as a, in a historic runoff election today. Now, Erdogan has led the country for two decades and has raised alarms as he consolidated power over the courts, the media, and arrested his critics. But there were signs he might face a stiff challenge in an election that also has implications beyond Turkey. The near final vote count has him ahead with a 52% to 48% lead over his challenger. To tell us more, we're joined by NPR's Fatma Tanis, who's reporting from Istanbul. Welcome. Hi. So first, how did Erdogan pull this off? I mean, it looked like he had a lot stacked against him. How did he wind up with a victory? That's right. The economy here is in really bad shape, and many blame Erdogan for it, as well as the mismanaged response to the devastating earthquakes that happened in early February. Uh, But, you know, Erdogan ran a divisive campaign where he tapped into populism and religious nationalist rhetoric. He accused his opponents of being linked to Kurdish militants who are seen here as terrorists. He promised that he would make Turkey a global power, and in the end, he convinced some people who are on the fence that even if things were bad, he would be the one to fix them and not his opponent. So has there been reaction already? What are people saying? 
Well, several members of the opposition have congratulated Erdogan for his win. Um, Erdogan's main challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, gave a speech this evening thanking supporters and promised to continue working for democracy. Uh, meanwhile, Erdogan supporters uh, have taken to the streets. They're honking and waving flags, even in the earthquake zone. You know, as you see videos of people celebrating with the backdrop of rubble behind them. Um, and, you know, Eric, one thing to note is that Erdogan came into office two decades ago as a champion of people who felt neglected by previous governments, working class people and religious conservatives, and they still see him as someone who looks after them. Uh, meanwhile, those who voted against him are deeply disappointed and say they're concerned for their future. So Turkey's relations with the West have been contentious under Erdogan, even though the country is a large and important member of NATO. Are there signs how that relationship might change now? Well, we'll probably continue to see Turkey walking a fine line. Erdogan tends to conduct a transactional foreign policy. He will likely maintain his ties with Russia's Vladimir Putin while continuing to supply weapons to Ukraine, for example. Uh, and analysts say he may eventually approve Sweden's membership to NATO, which is really important to the West in order to counter Russia. Um, that would be in, in exchange for F-16 fighter planes that Turkey wants from the United States. But, you know, it's hard for any Turkish politician to really appear to be close with the West. People here are sensitive to making sure their country isn't controlled by foreign powers. Well, Erdogan was widely seen as weakening Turkish democracy in recent years. Are there concerns that he'll continue to do that over the next five years? Yes, there are definitely concerns that democratic freedoms will continue to shrink under Erdogan, who's already known to be jailing opponents. Um, and the election was not really seen as a le level playing field. Erdogan monopolized the media. And during the campaign, while he was president, present on TV regularly campaigning, it was hard for his opponents to get airtime. And even their campaign text messages were blocked. But Eric, on the other hand, turnout for the vote was really high. Um, and people are here are determined to keep democracy in Turkey alive, no matter the outcome. Well, that's NPR's Fatma Tanis in Istanbul. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Jeffrey Hinton is known as the godfather of artificial intelligence. He helped create some of the most significant tools in the field. But now he's warning loudly and passionately that the technology may be getting out of hand. NPR's Bobby Allen spoke to him about what's driving his crusade. You know a computer scientist is a big deal when Snoop Dogg is talking about him. Here he is at a conference in Beverly Hills earlier this month discussing AI. What is going on? Then I heard the dude, that, the old dude that created AI, talking about this is not safe because the AI's got their own minds and these <laughs> gonna start doing their own I'm like, is we in a movie right now or what? <laughs> the old dude, of course, is Jeffrey Hinton a 75-year-old British academic living in Toronto who has spent 50 years developing cutting-edge AI, most recently for Google. Okay, can you hear me now? In 2012, Hinton and two of his students at the University of Toronto built what's called a neural network. It's called that because it's a geeky computer system that kind of operates the way a brain works, like the way neurons work. You could feed it tons and tons of data, like photos, and it would learn how to identify, say, a flower from a dog. This breakthrough is the foundation of so many AI tools used in everything from analyzing MRI scans in hospitals to helping farmers understand crop yields and, of course, used in the hit service ChatGPT. But now Hinton has left Google and is sounding the alarm. These things could get more intelligent than us and could decide to take over. And we need to worry now about how we prevent that happening. 
He came to this position recently after two things happened. First, when he was testing out a chatbot at Google and it appeared to understand a joke he told it. That unsettled him. Secondly, when he realized AI that can outperform humans is actually way closer than he previously thought. I thought for a long time that we were like 30 to 50 years away from that. So I call that far away from something that's got greater, greater general intelligence than a person. Now I think we may be much closer, maybe only five years away from that. Last month, more than 30,000 AI researchers and other academics signed a letter calling for a pause on AI research until the risks to society are better understood. Hinton refused to sign the letter because it didn't make sense to him. The research will happen in China if it doesn't happen here because there's so many benefits of these things, such huge increases in productivity. Now, what do those controls look like? How exactly should AI be regulated? Those are tricky questions that even Hinton doesn't have answers to. But he thinks politicians need to give equal time and money into developing guardrails. Some of his warnings do sound a little bit like doomsday for mankind. There's a serious danger that we'll get things smarter than us fairly soon, and that these things might get bad motives and take control. Hinton isn't talking about a robot invasion of the White House, but more like the ability to create and deploy sophisticated disinformation campaigns that could interfere with elections. This isn't just a science fiction problem. This is a serious problem that's probably going to arrive fairly soon, and politicians need to be thinking about what to do about it now. He says he got a laugh out of the clip of Snoop Dogg talking about his AI warnings. Snoop seems to get it. Hinton hopes that Washington will too. Bobby Allen, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for being here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Clear skies overnight, lows into the 50s. Tomorrow, sunny, cooler for Memorial Day. Highs tomorrow in the 60s. Sunny, low 70s on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 87 degrees. WBUR supporters include Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And the 2023 Boston Early Music Festival, featuring Grammy Award-winning opera, concerts, and more, June 4th to 11th in Boston, BEMF.org. The next step in the debt ceiling deal is for Democrats and Republicans to get their respective members on board to approve the plan worked out by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday. That's an ongoing process ahead of a vote expected on Wednesday. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton, who was impeached this weekend, says he has full confidence in the state Senate where he awaits trial. His wife is a state senator, but hasn't said if she will recuse herself. And at the weekend box office, The Little Mermaid took the top spot with an estimated $95 million in ticket sales. The live-action remake of the 1989 animated classic is the fifth biggest Memorial Day weekend opening ever. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments, buffalo.edu slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Eric Deggins. This is a time when we get to share a podcast we love from the NPR network. Today's is Curious City from WBEZ in Chicago, which investigates questions listeners have about the region. Since last summer, nearly 10,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago, most of them bused to the city by Texas officials. The city of Chicago and local organizations have been scrambling to provide necessities and open temporary shelters. Some migrants, including children and pregnant women, have been sleeping at police stations and public park buildings because options are limited. A listener asked what happened to the first wave of migrants and whether the city is prepared to handle more. To answer that question, Curious City reporter Adriana Cardona-Magiga spent time with Carolina, a woman who arrived on one of those buses last year. We're not using her full name because she's concerned about facing repercussions over her immigration status. Before we begin, this story contains descriptions of violence, including sexual violence. Here's Curious City reporter Adriana Cardona-Magiga. I first met Carolina last September at a church event on Devon Avenue. She was there with other migrants. They all had been staying at a makeshift shelter at a vacant YMCA in the West Ridge neighborhood. That night, the church had invited the new arrivals for a pizza dinner. Jeans, jackets, socks, underwear, all piled up on tables outside by the sidewalk for the migrants to take with them as needed. Carolina took a couple sweaters and jeans, but she was having a hard time finding her size. The biggest need, Carolina told me back then, was to find a home. She thanked God for the shelter they were in, but after spending weeks crossing more than six countries, many sleepless nights on the streets, and days in an immigration detention center in Texas, she wanted to find a place with a bed and a shower just for her. Carolina and the migrants looked tired that night I was there, but they also seemed excited about a fresh start in Chicago. This was also the start of many efforts between government officials and local organizations to aid and house the newcomers. I've stayed in touch with Carolina since that night. City officials sent Carolina and others from the YMCA to a hotel near O'Hare Airport. She felt completely lost. Without public transportation, she couldn't get to thrift stores or find work. She had no money or family to rely on. She had no other choice but to stay where officials were sending her. Since then, Carolina has come a long way. She's more independent now and has her own place but it hasn't been easy. To understand where she's now, we need to look back at how far she's come, starting with her decision to leave her home in Caracas, Venezuela. Life there got so hard that Carolina felt she had no other choice but to flee to the United States. 
Years ago, back in Caracas, she had her own food stand, she was a go-getter, and she was doing good. We were selling in the streets, she says. We sold coffee, fast food, like hamburgers and hot dogs. I had my own home, my motorcycle. I had everything, she says. But over the past decade, the country's economy collapsed under the authoritarian presidency of Nicolás Maduro. Our currency was completely devalued, she says. Cash simply became hard to come by. When I asked her about the monthly minimum wage by the time she left Venezuela, she gets frustrated. She says the minimum wage is about $5. Not only that, she and her husband have to pay a fix to groups called colectivos, she says. Those are civilians who work for Maduro and force residents to pay hefty fees to be allowed to stay in their homes or to go about their lives. If you don't pay, she says, you're in big trouble. The fix, Carolina says, is usually half the amount of the money we make. If we want to keep our assets, like our home. And her sons were in danger too. When her youngest was 18, the collectivos tried to kill him, she says. We couldn't leave our home. We were harassed all the time. That son was also in the military. She says he had orders to harass and hurt residents who weren't paying their shares. He didn't want to do that. After so much extortion and attempts by government officials to take over their home, she and her husband decided to leave and head to the United States, just like many of her friends and neighbors in Caracas were doing. She says she packed her bags with just the essentials. Then she traveled through Colombia and spent eight days in the dangerous landscape of the Darien Gap into Panama. On Carolina's journey through the jungle, little by little, she and her husband began leaving behind the few belongings they had with them. The jungle is filled with stranded belongings of fellow asylum seekers, shoes and water bottles. She says it looks like a supermarket. Imagine hiking up a mountain for 14 hours with a suitcase, she says. I threw away everything. My clothes, my blankets. The more you walk, the heavier everything gets. Carolina says, crossing the jungle was a traumatizing experience. Yo pensé que no íbamos a salir nunca de la selva. Nos perdimos. They didn't eat for three days. Her husband is diabetic. They got lost for a while. She says, 
The smell of dead bodies filled the air. Había gente ya que tenía tiempo muerto. Aparte, el barro no nos dejaba caminar. El sitio olía a muerto. Tengo que hablar por mis compatriotas que venían atrás. Muchachas bonitas que sí. She traveled with other Venezuelan women who later said they were raped and robbed. En esa selva tú no podías auxiliar a nadie. Solamente una palabra de aliento. You see people stuck, asking for help. And you just can't stop, she says. All you can do is offer a word of encouragement. Yo tengo grabada en mi mente esa muchacha que era, era gordita y la muchacha pedía un auxilio y ahí tú no puedes ayudar a nadie. En esa selva es, es como sálvese quien pueda. Tú o te salvas tú o no te salvas. When they got to the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, she and her husband were separated. U.S. immigration officials sent them to different detention centers. Carolina says... She had to let go of the last few items she had from her journey, including what she was wearing. Immigration officials gave her a new set of clothes. Ya lo único que traía era un mon, un, un, un cotón licra, una blusita y unos zapatos. Que me lo quitó migración. Porque después que llegas a migración, migración te quita lo que te queda. All she had left was her Venezuelan passport and her phone. There she was allowed to shower only once, she says. Con eso tiene que durar tu tiempo metido ahí, sin bañarte, sin cepillarte, sin nada. Así es migración. She spent about two weeks in that detention facility. After that, government officials gave her two options. Chicago, Nueva York. No te daban opción de más nada. Chicago, Nueva York, Chicago, Nueva York. Carolina says New York seemed too big, too scary. So she picked Chicago instead. Eventually, she and her husband found one another and they reunited here. And since arriving last August, she's been determined to make it work. Permiso. <laughs> Recently, I went to visit Carolina at the two-bedroom apartment she's renting on the southwest side. Okay, aquí te espero. She invited me into her living room and asked me to sit on a comfortable gray sofa. Next to the sofa, there was a desk with a computer, a shelf with a TV, and a few fake plants much of which was donated to her in recent months. Her new place is cozy, and she's so happy that she has her own bed, her own bathroom. I ask her, Carolina, how do you feel? ¿Cómo te sientes? Bien, gracias a Dios. ¿Sí? Carolina is looking proud. She smiles and says, good. I asked, did you ever imagine this life? Te llegaste a imaginar... She quickly interrupts, looks across her living room and says, like this? And with all these things? No. <laughs> Not at all. But how do you go from being forced to get rid of everything you have to rebuilding a whole new life in a completely different country and city? Carolina says she got to where she's now through a patchwork of support from many different agencies, churches, and individuals. Starting last August, Chicago city officials and community organizations came up with an emergency plan to assist the new arrivals. The city opened over 10 emergency shelters and is helping coordinate food, transportation, and other social services. City officials say they are spending millions on this effort and have been advocating for more funding from the state and federal government. Carolina was given shelter at a YMCA briefly until she and her husband were moved to a suburban hotel near O'Hare, along with many other asylum seekers. 
Living out in the suburbs was harder. Sin plata, mi hijo en México. Without money and a way to get around, it was harder to get a job. And Carolina was determined to find work to help her sons get here from Venezuela. But she hustled. She found a variety of odd jobs, including cleaning houses. She also stayed connected with volunteers and organizations who helped her with transportation and other basic needs. Eventually, she was able to get rent assistance for three months. With that, she was able to start setting down roots. She'll soon start paying rent on her own. Gracias a Dios, conseguí un arriendo. Este, tuve aquí lo que hago es trabajillo con igual con mi esposo. Primero porque yo no quiero estar en albergue, yo luchar y seguir y seguir adelante hasta que yo tenga mi permiso de trabajo. Many migrants coming to Chicago during this crisis hope to find that same kind of stability. But in the last month, the number of people seeking shelter here has increased from about 10 each day to up to about 125, according to city officials. And for weeks, emergency shelters have been packed with migrants. Now many public places are becoming temporary shelters, like police stations and park buildings. Back in Carolina's home, the whole family has been reunited in Chicago. Her two sons and her daughter-in-law are now with her. In just last month, her grandson, Isaac, was born, the first member of the family to be a U.S. citizen and a Chicagoan. But there are many challenges ahead for Carolina and the thousands of migrants hoping to find a legal path to live and work in the United States. Applying for asylum is not easy. Denial rates have historically been high. She says she can't go back to Venezuela. Carolina says she's going to keep fighting to stay independent, keep working hard. Maybe even open up her own Venezuelan restaurant that offers Colombian food. And why not? Maybe even Mexican food. People will love it, she says. That was Adriana Cardona Magiga, reporter for the podcast Curious City from WBEZ Chicago. You can find that episode and the full series wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. Today, we remember a former Navy corpsman who served in Afghanistan. A corpsman is essentially a medic. George Michael Todd died earlier this month in Atlanta. The cause was sudden cardiac death, and he was 38 years old. He was also known as Doc Todd, a hip-hop artist. In 2017, NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked to Todd about his album Combat Medicine. She has this appreciation. George Michael Todd had a few nicknames, Doc, Mick. He was a big guy with piercing blue eyes and a big personality. Pastor Chris McDaniel spoke at his funeral. First time I met Mick, he came up to me after church. I had just finished preaching a sermon and just like swallowed me up in a hug. And the first thing he says, I'm a rapper. And I was like, sure you are. He really was. 
The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. Doc Todd was born in Memphis. He joined the Navy in his mid-20s. In 2009, he was in Afghanistan during an American push in the Helmand River Valley, which was controlled by the Taliban. Todd treated blast and burn injuries. The heat was also brutal, says Colonel Eric Metter. The guys just couldn't stay cooled off. So Doc Todd and some of the other guys started pulling guys off the line at about a third of a time and telling them to jump in the canal. You know, so, hey, these guys are still fighting. Doc and his crew grabs a bunch of guys, jump in the canal, get wet, get back out. Now you get back up on the line, continue fighting, and let's rotate, get the next guys in there. So that's what he did on that day and probably saved a lot of guys from being heat casualties. Todd lost close friends during that battle. When he returned to the U.S., he had PTSD. In 2017, he told me it took several years before he got help. Throughout, he wrote rhymes. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown. Doc Todd's music is passed around widely among veterans. His most popular song is called Not Alone. And not Alone is about empowerment. Not Alone is about taking charge of your life, taking charge of your transition. Doc Todd was known to constantly pick up the phone to check in with fellow vets. Before he deployed to Afghanistan, he fell head over heels in love with his future wife. At his funeral, Abby Todd read a letter he wrote to her from Afghanistan. I dream about you almost every night. You soothe me so much and turn my nervous energy into something positive. You make me a better person and I thank you deeply for that. It's crazy, no matter how much I wash my feet, they still stink. <laughs> Just wanted to tell you that. I don't know why. The word authentic was used over and over again to describe Todd. Here's Pastor Chris McDaniel. The best way we honor the passing of a gentle giant, a big-hearted man, is to try to be as real as he is. Doc Mick Todd is survived by his wife and two daughters, his parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, and a whole lot of friends. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. And thanks for being here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Clear skies overnight, 50s. Sunny, cooler tomorrow for Memorial Day, 60s. Sunny, 70s on Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Russell's Garden Center, seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders, and garden decor, a shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners. Russell's, Route 20, Wayland.
and Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Turkey's president has won re-election to another five-year term, extending his increasingly authoritarian rule into a third decade. He won today's runoff despite the fact the country is dealing with high inflation and the aftermath of an earthquake that leveled cities. Police say one person has been charged with murder. Two others are also in custody after a shooting between two rival gangs in Red River, New Mexico, yesterday left three people dead, five others injured. And in the nation's capital on this Memorial Day weekend, thousands of motorcyclists from around the country are in town, part of Rolling to Remember. That group, formerly known as Rolling Thunder, calls attention to U.S. service members missing in action or, or who are prisoners of war. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local-to-global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins, and I'm going to hand things over to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation from her series, Enlighten Me. I started watching this show a few weeks ago. It's called Somebody Somewhere on HBO. And then I raved about it to anyone who would listen. A lot of things struck me about this show. First and foremost, the fullness of the queer characters, also the authenticity of the dialogue. But even more than those things, the show stood out to me because of the way that it represents religion through this one character named Joel. He's the best friend in this story. The main character is a woman named Sam, who's played by Bridget Everett. Sam has moved back to her hometown in Kansas, and she ends up reconnecting with this guy she went to high school with, Joel. The two of them fill voids in each other's lives in this beautiful way. In one scene, Sam is helping Joel shop around for a new church, even though she herself is not religious in the slightest. Okay, I got my little notebook. I'll write down all the pros and cons. We can just pop in, and if you're not feeling it, we'll just check out the next one. You want to start over here? Yeah. Let's do Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catch Methodist, swing around to Baptist, okay, let's and then we can go to the next block. Let's start and build one at a time. Jeff Hiller plays Joel in the show. I talked to him about his big break, also growing up gay and Christian in Texas and foregoing life as a pastor for a life of performing. This is really why I wanted to talk to you because I saw this scene <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? I kept waiting for like the dig, right? Like the cutting right. joke that was going to somehow eviscerate this religious person or this character because that's what we're, we're sort of used to seeing. And it wasn't that at all. No. And in fact, the only jokes really come at the expense of Sam just having no idea what <laughs> what churches do. Or, or, <laughs> right. right. She she's points at this, this beautiful place? stained glass thing of, of Jesus holding a lamb. And she's like, who's that guy holding the poodle? <laughs> and that guy holding a tiny poodle. Oh, my God, you've never been to a church, have you? Don't worry about it. 
it's just treated so gently in the show. Like it's not treated with derision. Um, yeah. It's just a part of who he is as a fully realized human being. Exactly. Because I know so many queer folks who are members of faith communities. And in fact, that's where they found their people, their their mm. family, their, their found family. And I know so many churches who uh, where, that are basically the only voice of social justice in their communities. They're, that's where you go if you need food. That's where you go if you need help on your rent. You know, I think in pop culture, when you see church, you just think, oh, it's going to smush down the, the gay people. Right. <laughs> and um, that's, it's so much more nuanced than that. So how would you define your spiritual identity? So I grew up in the church. I was super, I was very obviously gay growing up. Mm -hmm. I know it's a shock. <laughs> and um, I was, I mean, just sort of mercilessly bullied. I mean, I feel like mm. there needs to be a bigger word for it. Really? So school was just a nightmare, but my family was a, a safe space and so was church on Sunday mornings. Even kids who were mean to me in school would be nice to me in Sunday school. Um, and so the wow. church was really like, um, it was a safe space. I went to a, a slightly progressive Lutheran church. and This it, is in San Antonio, right? San Antonio, San Antonio Texas? Texas, exactly. And I worked at camps as a camp counselor, and those camps were super progressive. And the school where I studied theology in hopes of becoming a pastor were very progressive as well. They were all about contextual theology and really focusing on grace on the New Testament idea that God is full of grace and love as opposed to uh, the sort of Old Testament idea of <laughs> judgmental and, uh, and you know, angry God. So I still hold on to that. Now, I'm not, I, I went to church for many years, even after coming out, even after leaving Texas. Um, I, I did a sort of church-affiliated volunteer program after college where I was like a full-time volunteer. It was kind of like a AmeriCorps, but churchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I went to church then. And and even after I moved to New York to become an actor, I went to church for about 10 years. <laughs> and I stopped partly because of geography, partly because my husband is Jewish, mm. um, and partly because I feel like um, for me... At this moment in my life, I don't need a <laughs> a church. I just need to like volunteer and have a community, and yeah. I have that without uh, the sort of Sunday morning portion of it. I never really found one in New York that fit my fancy. <laughs> right. I want to go back to um, what it was like for you when you were growing up. You said that church and your family. We're both safe spaces. When did you come out to your family? What was that like? I came out when I was to my parents when I was doing that churchy AmeriCorps program. So it was after college because mm. I I had come out to some some people in college, but I went to Texas Lutheran College, so it wasn't like <laughs> right, it wasn't like Berkeley. You know what I mean? It was, <laughs> uh, there was no one else that was out, so you would whisper it, and then somebody would be like, "I heard that this person is gay too." You know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I told them after college cause I was afraid that they would, I don't know. I don't know what I was afraid of. Uh. Like it, it didn't make any sense. My mom had been nothing but kind. Mm. And of course, when I came out, they were like, 
Yeah, we know. <laughs> I've, I've never told anybody who was like, really? Uh, <laughs> I am who I am. And uh, so, anyhow, it was totally fine. Did you sing in the church choir? I did. So did <laughs> and the I. school choir. Yeah. Did you in the yes, church totally. choir? I was totally in the church choir. I had a solo when I was seven. I like I was a big I was a big star, Jeff. I was a big star in the church choir. <laughs> Do you remember the solo? Like what the song was? Yeah, we have to cut all this out. Yes, it was by, it was by Amy Grant. Yes. Thy word? By Amy Grant. It, oh my God! I love thy word. <laughs> thy word, word is, is a lamp unto my, my feet. feet. <laughs> and a light anyway, that's going out. Um, but enough about me. But I am interested, though. You to the point that you, I mean, you were going to be a pastor. You, yeah. This was you felt to use to use the terminology. You you really felt called to that. Oh my gosh, we use that terminology like crazy. We love talking about being called. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I I think about that now, and it's like, it's such um, it's such a word that you use to sort of hide ambition. <laughs> totally. You know I mean? Right. 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 <laughs> me. I mean, I could just do anything. I was called. What am I supposed to exactly. do? Exactly. Right. You know, I'm wrestling with it. I'm wrestling with the call. <laughs> How are you? How are you? Um. Yes, I I did feel called though. Like that's the other thing is that I was being sincere. I wasn't just using language. I I really felt called. Yeah. But I mean, in retrospect, it's like I love to perform and I love to entertain, and mm. that was something you you know you knew you had at least one hour every week. <laughs> Admittedly, not the not the best hour Sunday at ten a.m. But still, <laughs> there was an audience. They showed up. Built an audience. Some right. you know, if it's a big enough church, you could get two shows an eight and a ten thirty. Um, but. I really, I loved doing a sermon and, and things like that. And I think if I hadn't come out or, you know, if I weren't gay, I would be a pastor right now. Uh, but really? at the time in the ELCA, which is my, my I, the Lutheran synod that I was a part of, they said you could be gay, but you couldn't have a partner. You had to be celibate. And I found that very... Uh, <laughs> rude. <laughs> right. So it's, it's it's a sin like everyone else's sin, and so you can't right. live in your sin. Exactly. Um, and that's that has since changed. Mm -hmm. But it, it that was what the rule was when I was graduating from college and contemplating going to seminary, and so I just didn't. That's when I did all the social worky stuff, and then I was like a terrible social worker. <laughs> it's, you need a lot of like conflict. You can't be afraid of conflict to be a social worker, and I am so. Uh. Uh, and, and also, I just really, really, really wanted to perform. Yeah. And so... Did you grieve that at all, that you couldn't do this thing that you had thought that you were going to do for a long time? That's so interesting. I don't think grieve is the right word. I think I had some shame about it oh. um, and some embarrassment about not... I mean, you know, <laughs> even on the most basic level, like I was working with homeless youth and I left... I left the homeless youth to go like do improv comedy. I mean, <laughs> it's not, it, it's hard to spin <laughs> as a positive. <laughs> I, I do remember one pastor telling me like, she was like, well, you're bringing joy to the world. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of fart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, here we are. And here we are. 
you spent many years teaching people to do this craft, right? You were teaching acting and comedy yeah. to a whole bunch of people who are pretty famous at this point? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, 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 it ate me up. I was very jealous of them. But yes, Ivy Jacobson, Alana Glazer, Kate McKinnon, Ellie Kemper, Darcy Carden, all of these people. It didn't matter that they were in, incredibly talented, you know, gorgeous and <laughs> and smart and uh, and fun and kind, warm people. But yeah, I did. I got really jealous of them. <laughs> what was the internal dialogue in your head besides the just the knee-jerk emotional reaction of being a little envious? Um, <laughs> what what would pop up in the in the story that you were telling yourself? Well. Uh, the main story was, you know, too ugly, too gay, too large. I'm very large. <laughs> I'm six foot five and, you know. It's big for TV. I'm, I'm over 200. Yeah, it's big for TV. You know, you, you look like They're Lurch standing people. there next to all the movie stars. <laughs> They're and... too tiny. It's not you. <laughs> They're all too small. That's right. That's right. But, of course, like, it makes you just feel like... Uh, worthless like well, you know you, you start to believe that and you also start to think like what am I doing wrong like I mm-hmm. see these people and I feel like I'm I'm also talented what, why am I not getting roles and uh, basically the answer is it's not fair right. <laughs> entertainment's not fair life is not fair uh, that's just not how it works which is hard when you grew up you know believing like God will make it all right. right. You know, like, there's a reason for this. This this person died, but it's for the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's all a part of the plan. And you're like, what's the plan? What, what is, is the plan, plan here? Yeah. What is what is the plan? I don't like this plan. I want a, I want a new one. <laughs> oh, my God, Rich. That is so true. I really did want another one. plan. <laughs> <laughs> so is it fair to say that this role on Somebody Somewhere is your big break? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely. I mean, undoubtedly. <laughs> what other words can we say? <laughs> I mean, like, before this, I was playing waiters, you know? This is huge to actually have an interior life and, I mean, just have a name. <laughs> it's a big deal oh, for my career. Oh, like, uh, attached to your role? Like, you, yes, that you have an identity? Yes, as opposed to, like, waiter or, like, maitre d'. <laughs> that was the, that that was the scary thing. I had aged out of waiter into maitre d'. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a trip, though, to be at this for so long and then to what? You, you actually got a phone call from Bridget Everett, right? Yeah, yeah. She asked me, well, it was an email, oh, but she did. asked me to audition and uh, she said, would you consider auditioning for my show? <laughs> and I was like, I I will audition for, <laughs> you know, an internet commercial. Yes, I'll audition for your HBO show. You ever bless an animal? No. Have you? Yeah. I did a goat once. You blessed a goat? Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I read this role and I was like, I'm a theology major. This this guy is, you know, he goes to church. He's he sings. He he plays the piano. He's he's you know warm and kind. And uh, I I know how to play this. I kind of felt like, oh, I think they wrote this role for me, but they didn't. They were like, no, we didn't. We didn't know who you were. 
Joel. Hmm. Is that a dream board? No. Oh. It's a vision board. Okay. You really spent some time on this. It, not. Yeah. You need to go to Paris. You got an Eiffel Tower there, and well, just Europe. I want to go to Europe. Okay. Oh, and then of course, uh, everybody's hands and a heart. Community. Uh-huh. Great. Joel does vision boards, right? He cuts things out of magazines and puts them on his vision board to try to manifest them in real life. Yes. Um, if if you were a person who was inclined towards vision boards, is there anything left to put up there? <laughs> Well, first of all, I am inclined oh, to vision boards. Yes, <laughs> I love it. I knew it. And, and I always just thought it was a really nice way of like goal planning. And then when I got that script, I was like, oh, they're kind of like pretending like it's cheesy. <laughs> <And> then... <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Was this is this dorky? I know. And even Joel is like self aware that it's cheesy. I was like, oh, I I thought this was just good. Um, <laughs> I used to be really embarrassed that I was a very ambitious person, but I just sort of own it now, yeah. and I'd love to continue acting. I, I'm a writer. I'd love to create something uh, mm. for me to act in, because, <laughs> you know, I'm hard to cast. Uh, <laughs> and I'd love to just continue having adventures, you know? Yeah. Jeff Hiller, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Jeff stars in the